Welcome to Cognation. Uh, I'm your host, Rolf Nelson. And I'm Joe Hardy. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about embodied cognition. Uh, our guests have uh, just come out with an edited volume called Movement Matters, How Embodied Cognition Informs Teaching and Learning, uh, which just came out earlier uh, in April this year, I think. Uh, and our guests today are uh, Dr. Sheila McCreen uh, from the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth and her colleague, Jennifer Fugate. Uh, so both of you, thank you so much for being here, here today. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. So the topic today is, is on embodied cognition. Um, and uh, I'll relate this to a recent episode that we had on this podcast uh, with Annie Murphy Paul, who, who uh, had a book out called um, The Extended Mind. And I think uh, there are a lot of similarities between the way that she was talking about how cognition uh, can be thought of as extending to certain things out there in the environment. So I'd just like to start out by asking, uh, asking you, you know, how you think of embodied cognition and how you, how you arrived at really wanting to look into this idea of embodied cognition and then apply it towards uh, all these things in education and elsewhere. So um, I, my name is Sheila McCrane and I'm a full professor at UMass Dartmouth. And um, I'm a cognitive psychologist, and I was a practicing school psychologist for many years. I started as a special education teacher and realized that the kids had problems reading. I went back and got a reading specialist certification. Then I realized that there's much more to the kids than the curriculum. And um, I started looking at social, emotional, and cognitive aspects of the child and the student and the learner. Then I decided to go all the way and, and get my PhD. And uh, I completed two PhDs um, at Temple University. During that time, I studied uh, learning, you know, cognitive uh, psychology, but I also got exposed to a lot of philosophy. I had really cool professors. I started reading about um, Merleau-Ponty's work, looking at, um, you know, the, the idea of being in the, in the world uh, Merleau-Ponty talked about the notion that, you know, we're not these mind-body separated beings, that we're beings in a world, and that um, he talked about the notion of thinking, learning as an enfleshment, that it is part of the body in the world uh, altogether. So it was really theoretical at the time when he started writing, um, and then that kind of got picked up um, by feminist scholars in the 1990s talking about this duality and the dichotomy of male-female, mind-body, the separation of mind-body. And then, uh, lo and behold, uh, Clark and Chalmers came out with uh, their book, Extended Mind, um, uh, their article, Extended Mind. So we'll talk a little bit more about those four E's of embodied cognition, but um, embodied cognition really talks about the fact that we we learn with our mind and our body and the environment so we're embedded in an environment we're in a situated um, position to learn um, and so my whole area is really about teaching and learning and how this cartesian model of mind-body separation has really impacted learning and in the classroom. So I teach a lot of teachers who are going to be special ed teachers. The idea is that um, we still teach the way we taught 100 years ago. We still uh, have the, the kids sitting and being consumers 
uh, where the teachers are talking head, the kids are recipients of the information, um, and the teachers really this talking head, preparing kids for skills and drills, ready for standardization and testing. And we know now, uh, we know now with neuroscience and with the MRIs and everything, that embodied cognition is a real thing, that we do work, uh, we do learn with our motor cortex, with our sensory motors, with our all our senses, that everything's involved in the learning process. So our effort was to try to look at how learning can be impacted by this new information. Backing up a little bit, I've been teaching learning uh, theory for over 20 years, and none of the textbooks have really picked up on any of this. It's still a very uh, dualistic model. You know, we had behaviorism, and then we evolved to constructivism, and it's still a, a brain-bound model of teaching and learning. And then in 2015, um, at, uh, at UMass, Jennifer was there at the time, and I heard about her work, and I had been writing about an embodied understanding of teaching, learning, and understanding. And I didn't quite have the whole piece that Jennifer uh, talks about um, in terms of embodied cognition. I was talking about an embodied understanding, but it was basically the same thing. So I knocked on her door and I said, wow, you're doing some really cool stuff. And we started talking and it was almost kismet because she said, oh, oh, and then we got really excited. So we've been collaborating ever since. And uh, I'm really excited about it because I think it, this is the time for a paradigm shift in our understanding of cognitive psychology, cognitive science and learning and teaching and how it can really make a revolution in education if people buy it, you know, buy the idea, you know, and now we have the neuroscience to back it up. But Jennifer, go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Hila. That's an awesome introduction. So um, I'm Jennifer Fugate. I'm an associate professor at Kansas City University in the Department of Health Psychology. Um, I am actually a cognitive, uh, comparative cognitive psychologist by training. So I did my graduate work um, exploring the evolution of the brain and what language brings to the brain um, over evolutionary time. I worked with non-human primates, specifically with chimpanzees and studying vocalizations and emotional expressions in non-human primates. Um, as I was doing that, though, I had the pleasure at Emory University to TA for Larry Barcelo, who's one of the founders of Embodied Cognition. So through his work, it really opened my eyes to this whole um, view of embodiment and how it was very different from traditional cognition and how we thought about the brain as, as reacting to stimuli as opposed to um, predicting stimuli and using our environment and our body to make these predictions. So just to say a little bit more about um, embodied cognition, you know, traditional models of cognition really emphasize this Cartesian dualism that Sheila mentioned, this separation of our perception and motor states from our body and our bodily action. And the idea through the cognitive revolution was that the brain is really seen as a computer, that it's used for processing brain-based amodal and abstracted information. Embodied cognition, on the other hand, you know, really kind of flips this on its head. And we start to see this idea that thinking is inseparably linked with the body and the environment. And so when we're thinking about something, we're creating these rich nuanced experiences through our, our sensory motor systems, all of our systems, sensory systems, and these rich um, embodied 
instances are then collected by our brain or represented in our brain. And depending on the theory of embodied cognition, people will dither whether that's actually there's an abstraction at some point or not. But then when we use that information and think about it, recall that information, we're performing these mini simulations. And so we're actually re-experiencing those sensory motor states. You know, this is really the beauty of embodied cognition and, and why I always like to, to thank Mary Barcelo in this case for opening my eyes to this and leading me um, to think about cognition so very differently. Uh, full disclosure, I then went on to do a postdoc with, non, uh, with humans and studying emotion perception and ex, um, expression and regulation. And I've been doing that work and still do do that work for the last 20 years. Um, but I always had this interest in cognition um, that's done back from grad school. And then as Sheila mentioned in 2015, we met each other and she was telling me about all this ideas in education. And, um, you know, I, I was listening and as she paused, I, I said to myself, well, we have a name for that in psychology. It's called embodied cognition. And, you know, she just really, her face just lit up and we're like, we're talking about the same things just in different ways. And we thought, you know, what a great thing to try to bring together an, an umbrella type framework, a really deductive translational model that can be used to translate science into education and to teach teachers about this idea of embodied cognition. Are there some examples that you could give of specific ways in which we think with our bodies or we, you know, we have an embodied cognition that are illustrative that really kind of point this up in a way that you know, would not be as well explained by the old model the study that blew it out of the water for me was um, some of the neuroimaging work. Holbemeyer is a great example in his study. You know, he had people read motion words while being scanned in the MRI scanner. And so here people are reading words about body parts moving, but they're not actually moving anything. And what you see is activation in the motor cortex specific to that region discussed in the word. So if the word is kick, you see motor activation within the brain in parts of the, of the motor cortex that represent the feet. And that can be dissociated from punch where you'd see motor, cort motor cortical activation, but in the hand region. So if reading and learning was really abstracted, you wouldn't expect that the motor system would be involved and clearly here it was. So that was some of the first neuroscience evidence that really said to me, this is a viable um, theory with real um, science support. Sheila, do you wanna add in some other Yeah, I, I was just gonna kind of back up a little bit and, and talk about the fact that um, when we pitched this idea to MIT, my, maybe this pulls the whole thing together. We talked about embodied cognition as this theory and then being validated by empirical um, uh, research and, and certainly neuroscience research. But what we really contribute to this model is embodied learning. So um, we, we talked to MIT and talked about the idea that what our idea was derivative from uh, the NIH model of translational re uh, science research, which is a model uh, that has you know, been really popular to try to get the latest lab-based experiments in um, biomedicine to the patient. So it's, it's considered a lab to patient bedside. Um, and so we took that idea of, of this translational science research and talked about it in terms of the learning sciences. So just not one content area, but all learning sciences in a way that we would 
um, take the latest empirical and neuroscience that was just coming out as the book was kind of evolving and uh, to try to ask these researchers who are working in the labs and behavioral uh, uh, work with uh, learning in math and history and I mean not math and physics and reading and uh, different content areas who were working all in silos nobody was talking to each other and we said that we wanted to come up with this sort of umbrella model where we would uh, develop this model of translational learning sciences research so that we could get the information out to the educators. Uh, the example from uh, the biomedical field is that most you know, research and medicine takes about five to 10 years to get out to the public. There was a revolution with COVID that, you know, uh, vaccine was developed within, you know, and out to the public within uh, five to eight months. Um, so what we were talking to MIT was that the way, you know, we expect kids to learn has not changed in over 100 years. And this revolution is, is an extension of... Um, how we know kids learn, like we can go back to Montessori, we can go back to Piaget who talks about hands-on learning. And, you know, I, I tell my students all the time, good teachers do this intuitively, but do they understand at a theoretical level and is it validated by science? Is it vetted by, you know, empirical research? And now we have that. And that's what MIT was very excited about because this is really new for educators. This is a new kind of approach. And the, the fact that we have so many different content areas, um, we did our best to curate some of the best people in the world internationally, these scholars who are working in embodied cognition, but as I said, in their own particular content areas. And we asked them to take that research. Maybe they did some work in the classroom. Maybe there's some validation in some cases, and we'll talk about that. But to make an application for the classroom so that educators, school psychologists, researchers, you know, scholars can look at it and see what it looks like in the flesh. And so we're very proud of it with the resources and everything. And this model that is the derivative of uh, embodied cognition, the embodied learning, um, you know, we're very, very excited about it to say the least. That is exciting. And this is, yeah, this is great. Um, it's great to see um, research that has an actual application out there and which could be of, of potentially huge use to um, pedagogy in a lot of different environments. So that must feel gratifying in it itself. A bit of a Herculean effort, but <laughs> hopefully we pulled it off well. Even thinking of looking at uh, medical education, you know, training doctors and, and nurses and, and folks that are, you know, using some of this technology that they, you know, the, the professors are just getting training on how to use the machines or the, the programs, but not really understanding on a theoretical level how their pedagogy can be applied in a virtual world. So that's kind of an exciting area that we're looking at now. So do you have, a, do you have maybe a, a one favorite example of a, a pedagogical technique that arose from, um, that arose from either brain research or behavioral research in uh, embodied cognition and is, uh, you feel especially uh, exciting or, or interesting? Sheila, do you wanna give an example or I'm happy to? Um, do you mean at the educational like content area? Or are you talking about like biobehavioral or what, what would you like us to oh, talk so about? I'm thinking about it, uh, individual pedagogical technique that, that oh. um, may be effective. You know, what kinds of um, ways of learning in the classroom sort of using this framework? Just yeah, so, so people get a sense of, you know, individual kinds of things that 
that work. Absolutely. I mean, I can give an example that you know um, we've we've shared before, and I think is a really great example of how the research has gone from psychology laboratory now has been classroom vetted, which unfortunately isn't always the case in a lot of these applications, or they go right to developers and there's a lack of understanding of the science there. But just to highlight by way of example, our Glenn Burr's work, he's done a lot in reading comprehension and has a program um, called Moved by Reading that actually has children as they learn to read, act out the sentences with characters, it's first physical characters, He's done it now subsequently and effectively with uh, virtual computer characters, so moving um, characters on the screen in accordance with what the story is, is talking about. And what he and his colleagues show is that students who learn through the physical manipulation of these act actions learn to read not only that study, uh, that um, story better, but they have increased comprehension increased vocabulary, increased memory, and it also extends to other genres as well. So um, Move by Reading is freely available. It's also now in Spanish, so it has some great you know, cultural um, um, generalizability, and it's just an, a great way of how taking the science that we know about how um, young people read and this idea of embodiment designing an application that then can be used um, you know, effectively in the classroom. So one of the things in the book is full of examples like this, but one of the things, the things that Sheila and I are most proud of, we feel is our re really unique contribution is that we were able to then go through all of these different individualized examples, as she said, existing in silos, and then pulling out theoretical principles that then can be translated to action principles. And so it's a really, we hope, um, a go-to source, not just for academics and researchers, but educators alike, who can look and adopt these principles as they learn more about the science behind it. So by way of example, you asked. So I'll, I'll give you one of the principles that you know this kind of lends itself to. So we know that reading comprehension relies on connecting linguistic elements to sensory motor representations, that is the work of Glenberg and others. And an option principle that we've derived from that is that teachers can encourage language comprehension through having students act out vocabulary and sentences through physical representation. They can perform iconic actions to illustrate word meaning. They can use gesture and mime to do so. Teachers can also use simple body movements to help learners understand these more advanced concepts. One of the great things is that when you understand something physically like opposition of forces, it actually has been shown to extend to opposition arguments. So something much more symbolic. So there's kind of a general um, um, principle underlying some more abstract concepts. And then, um, you know, this idea we haven't talked much about and perhaps we will, but this idea that um, students learning from one another, students learning from the teachers, interacting with their gestures and these iconic and simple body movements. We know that the mirror neuron system is activated and that an imitation is a really important source of learning, not just early in development, but throughout development. And once teachers understand um, the principles, why embodied cognition work, we know that they're not only more invested to work with their students, but their students um, also perform better as well. So my question here is, do you think there are limits to the types of things that can be taught in embodied ways? Or are there are some, some subjects or areas that, and I, I'm seeing a shaking head there. So 
I think the answer is going to be, this can apply to almost everything. One of the, I guess one of the questions I had about language in, in specific is um, if, you're, if you're maybe uh, associating individual words or you know, vocabulary with movements or you know, something like that. Um, I guess in cognitive psychology, we typically think of a requirement of language that there has to be, or that there would be an arbitrary relation between the, the thing being represented and the linguistic representation of it. So I wonder if this. I think that that uh, is still a little bit narrow in terms of language. I think, uh, you know, we're looking at language learning and, and machine learning now and how they've really moved away from the computational model of mapping one idea on top of another or sort of the, you know, computer input output. Um, and taking, you know, we have a, a new project coming out about how embodied cognition has informed embodied AI. And so the idea is that we have evolved as humans and how we think and learn and our understanding of cognition has evolved. We have gone from very behaviorist model, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, stimulus response, we advanced toward it to the computer model that input output, you know, the brain is a muscle, let's exercise it. And then we had the cognitive sort of revolution on the heels of the computer um, model uh, where we talked about constructivism and you know, the idea that we're constructing information, it's still very brain bound and limited to the skull. You know, the whole idea, I think uh, the um, idea about the brain in the vat, you know, if we had this vat with a brain in it and just put electrodes into it, would it be able to function as a human? Um, and we know, no, it can't exist without a body. It can't exist, it can't learn within an environment. Um, so the idea has evolved to uh, uh, this constructivist model, and then we moved to a social constructivist model, but the idea was still that the brain is brain bound. And then this emerging notion of an embodied cognition where everything works together has really helped us understand how gesture, how being embedded in a situation, you know, how we enact on, on a particular thing, um, you know, these four E's we talk about, the extended uh, cognition that uh, I'm sure Annie Paul exp ex explained a lot more about. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea is that with, uh, with this mapping, this traditional model of learning with mapping one-on-one -on -one is no longer the case. One of our colleagues um, that we, we spoke to who teaches Spanish said, you know, teaching Spanish is very embodied because you can say one word in Spanish and if your body moves in a certain way, or your hands move or you're gesturing or your face makes, you know, you speak with your body, you know, you're in, in your environment. And I thought that was really a good way to help people understand what embodied cognition is all about. It's not just the one word mapping of concept. And certainly the AI folks have picked this up as well when they're talking about rather than having, you know, uh, an artificial intelligence model, totally uh, computational, but rather predictive like the human brain. So we've uh, talked to folks at, um, at uh, Stanford who are doing work with virtual robots, and um, they're talking about how they've evolved, and they're no longer just okay, now, you know, we're programming the, the robot to walk up a terrain or upstairs, uh, but rather that the deep machine learning, the predictive model of AI is now mimicking our understanding of how we learn, that we are predicting as we go 
through the world. We're being in the world. We're reacting in the world. And that's how we've learned. That's how we've evolved. That's how, you know, that now that the AI folks are picking that up, some of these virtual robots have now evolved to the point where they develop external or extra limbs to cope with the environment. So it's a very exciting cross fertilization here between the two worlds. Not that we want to talk anything about computational models, but really the idea of how humans learn and how humans can inform um, you know, the development of artificial intelligence. Very exciting stuff. I mean, we're just kind of cutting edge stuff here. Yeah, I'd like to, I mean, I'd love to hear more about, um, about your thoughts about artificial intelligence. I'm thinking, I mean, some of this stuff emerged out of artificial intelligence too, because like Rodney Brooks work That's on, right. um, yeah. you know, how um, emergent behaviors can come out of interactions with the environment that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah, we're kind of, it's sort of synergistic. Um, you know, we're just kind of developing and opening it up and we're, we're going all the way back to sort of um, the idea of, uh, you know, affordances, you know, Gibson's affordances and, you know, how, um, you know, Roche's categorizations and labels and vision and, and all these different things that uh, now AI is kind of investigating. And, you know, as you said, they're informing us. Brooks kind of came up with the idea uh, long, long ago. Uh, so it's it's pretty it's pretty exciting to say the least. We're just delighted to to be in this place in the world at this time. <laughs> yeah, I mean there are so many vestiges of embodied cognition throughout the literature. I mean whether it be philosophy, which you mentioned Sheila, but also you said robotics, anthropology, psychology, even going back to phenomenology, cognitive science. So I think part of the 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 goal of this book was not only just to bring together um, different disciplines within education, but just different disciplines within research too, um, and try to get on the same page with our language. You know, these, these ideas and these terms have floated around under, under different names for centuries now, but I, I think what we needed and hopefully we're able to provide is more of a unified framework that together many researchers from different disciplines can um, work under. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, when I think about embodied cognition, that's really what I think about is, is a framework. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, like J.J. Gibson's direct perception, uh, thinking about predictive coding and the idea that like we're actually just, our brain is a prediction machine. We're yeah. constantly creating the world that we're experiencing. Um, and that's just, yeah, it pulls together so many threads, which is what I really love about this, uh, this field. Uh, one of the things that I think about in this context is the sense of self. So, uh, you know, I think there's, there's this way in which we think about ourselves, which is a narrative talk track that we have going in our brains, which is a lot of times we, you know, this is, this is ourselves to ourselves is when we we're, when we're thinking through a problem and we're using words in our brain, thinking about it, we think that that's our self, but in fact, that's only a part of ourselves. We're, a, we're an embodied creature that in, lives in an environment, a social environment, but a physical environment as well. It's, it's just a totally different way of thinking about things that, that pulls a lot of threads together, which I really like. Yeah, I totally agree. And you know, just to go back to your earlier point, I think the more richly that you can encode your environment through um, your senses, but also this idea of affordances and interacting with affordances that the environment provides, it just provides a richer um, 
platform later on than for simulation. So we talk a little bit about handwriting, for example, in our book. And the reason why we're such big advocators for keeping printing and cursive and handwriting in the classroom is, is simply because there's so much more nuanced motor action when you hold a pen and you write and you touch the paper than there is when you just do this on a keyboard. I have to tell my son that he's 10 years old and it's one of the things that that uh, he struggles with the most is actually writing and uh, you know he's great with reading but 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 actually cursive writing or even print writing is a it's, challenge it's for him. A, it's a struggle. My, my son's 11, so I hear that. And the other thing, just by way of another example, and one that's highlighted in the book, is the importance of finger counting. You know, I tell this story when my son was in second or third grade, and he came home and he was really abashed because his teacher had told him that he needs to stop counting on his fingers. And I said, there's nothing further from the truth. We now actually have empirical data that shows that your knowledge of your fingers, your ability to count on your fingers, as a young child is predictive of your mathematical ability all the way through college and that people who use their fingers in even complex algebraic calculations actually show increased activation in the brain. So oh, that's like great. Using that's your fingers. That's yeah. really interesting. And also uh, handwriting. Um, one of the researchers is doing uh, empirical work on the difference. Well, we wrote an article also about the difference between handwriting and keyboarding. And what we found out through, you know, others, you know, looking at other research and everything is that um, college, even college students benefit more from taking notes with handwritten notes than keyboarding because the handwritten notes, the students have to kind of clump the ideas or cluster the ideas together as they write. They can't transcribe that quickly every single word. So they're already processing some of the con concepts. And that goes to the language part of the brain, whereas keyboarding just is mindless. And if you know, when you're typing, sometimes you can just drift off and, and there's no real connection with the language or the real processing part of the brain. Um, so that's really, really exciting for us as well to know that. And just uh, for the educators out there, in 2005, the National Core Curriculum took cursive writing out of the national standards and parents were in an uproar. And I think about five years past that, you know, different states, you know, they all kind of come up with their own scope and sequence of what the standards are that, you know, that state wants you to pass, you know, for their education departments. And the point was, is that they were, you know, having kids with keyboards in kindergarten and teaching them keyboarding in kindergarten. So, uh, you know, the research now bears out with an embodied cognition model to say that, uh, you know, handwriting is absolutely essential for early development, uh, essential for understanding uh, as opposed to um, as opposed to keyboarding. So there is evidence that, um, you know, yes, of course, keyboarding is an important skill for young children, but the handwriting piece is really important for development and understanding and learning and really helping the brain and the body and everything to work together. And, you know, we, Jennifer and I were talking about even the writing on paper, uh, you know, feeling that, you know, uh, the paper and the pen together. And even with severely learning disabled kids, we might even use sandpaper to trace with fingers because we're getting that kinesthetic tactile, you know, visual auditory, you know, that whole, all those senses together to help uh, the student to learn. Now, now here's something you might know more about too, but I know that in occupational therapy for kids, they, uh, especially in teaching handwriting, a lot of the instruction involved is in motor movements. 
Um, I can say that I know, and this goes back to Joe's point earlier, it's really important to practice bad penmanship. <laughs> and that sounds stupid, but you know, as a child learns, you know, they're trying to perfect it and inevitably it starts out and it looks like junk, you know, and every parent praises them. Oh, it looks like your name. Great job. And eventually it gets more and more refined. But what we know is that every time you practice, what you're doing again is getting a different instance, um, you know, of how a letter can look, of seeing how a letter can look. And that's going to then um, allow your concept of what a B is or a D yeah. is to be more inclusive. Yeah. And so all of that practice that goes into fine tuning and coming out with, you know, something that looks like our characteristic B is actually really good for the brain. It's not just motor practice, but it gives the brain all these different depictions that can later, if you will, and you believe in an abstraction process, can then be extracted into a category that represents B. And that's actually called emergent literacy. Um, children, even at, you know, three or four years old, imitate the writing practices of their particular culture and they you know they'll write things and scribble things and they'll tell you what it means you know uh, you know it's not it's not for us to understand but it's really an emergent literacy model uh, to allow kids to write so we're really against you know just keyboarding in schools for kids yeah i mean one of the things that you know thinking about in, incorporating movement in, in in the context of embodiment into learning it occurs to me, and I'm you know, curious if you all have thoughts on this, which is, uh, you know, it just seems like if you get up and move around and you're able to engage with the environment and other people, it's just more, it's just more interesting and more fun and engaging. That might be a real benefit in of itself in, in education. Jennifer and I were talking and I went to an all girls school and, you know, it was very, you know, regimented, uh, really tough, but uh, you know, we sat in our chair, we didn't really get to be, you know, that verbal. And I think it was until sophomore year that I actually got up out of my chair and went to a bio lab. And I thought that was the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> so what you're saying is important because, um, you know, if we take the COVID era, you know, we have kids that, um, you know, were in third grade when it started and they had two years without real good you know, uh, you know, uh, instruction, um, you know, I talk to teachers and they say some kids have lost two years, you know, and that's really an important time. And, you know, we get a lot of questions about what about online learning? Well, all of us know that we all were thrown into it by the seat of our pants. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm still really struggling. Jennifer helps me all the time. My son helps me reluctantly. And, um, so the idea was like, people say, well, how can it be embodied learning online? Well, it is. I mean, if you watch Jennifer's facial movements and her hand movements and everything, but these are baby steps in what we're talking about embodied learning. Now, if you think about, um, you know, what's the next, you know, big thing, it's really using virtual classrooms where the kids are actually up walking around, maybe with Oculus glasses. We had a, a, a presentation at uh, um, uh, AP, uh, APS uh, last month. And we had, you know, demonstrations of kids, you know, uh, going into actually uh, an isosceles triangle and, you know, just, you know, sliding down the slope to determine the slope. I mean, it is so immersive, uh, so physical, so embodied, and it really goes against a traditional model of learning where kids memorize 
you know, the formalisms like Nathan talks about, you know, the, the, the um, you know, you know, the equations or the formulas, but rather doing it and then deriving the principles from it is really kind of what we're advocating. So it's that act, a part of that is also the real active learning part of it. Yes. So, yes. so engaging um, and getting feedback from the environment and sort of testing the environment rather than just pure thinking about it. So it's going to really shift, you know, we talk about flipped classrooms, but this is really like, you know, paradigm shift in what we're seeing and what we envision the future of classrooms to look like. They're not going to be these rows and columns, and it's not going to be, you know, the talking head teacher, but really we're hoping uh, that it's really going to be an immersive action-based project-based learning, uh, which we all know works. But now that we have neuroscience behind it, we're hoping to make this revolution in what classrooms will be. And we specifically talk about the fact that we want educators, you know, curriculum developers, educational policy folks to read the book to see what's, you know, on the cutting edge. I'm, st I'm still having trouble thinking, and, and this is maybe just my limited imagination here, of certain topics or certain classes that I feel like, you know, maybe abstract concepts seem tougher to do, or maybe, you know, sometimes, oh, you just got to tough it out and learn the formula or memorize this bit. So Jennifer, you give me an example from physics, if that helps. <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, as Jill and I mentioned, we're, we're moving to um, behavioral health and biomedical health as well. But um, in the book is a great example from the Vieiras, which is a husband and wife team um, who teach physics and have actually developed a smartphone app the students can put on their smartphones, which the majority of students have now, and they walk through space and learn physics through actually interacting with space. So unbeknownst to me and maybe some of the listeners, your phone actually has all of these different um, accelerometers and navigation pieces already built in to run your <laughs> Google Maps and whatever. Um, and so it capitalizes on all those internal sensors that are already built there so that as you walk through the environment, um, one of the things they, they feature is gravitational pull. And there's other concepts that they teach them as well, acceleration, velocity. But the, I love the gravitational pull example because students all come, on with, come in with this full psychology. And this is what the VRS highlighted that, you know, they should be able to move this way with their phone and that should simulate you know, this um, gravitational field. And they were actually really frustrated at first because they expect the lines of gravity to essentially be straight. And they don't realize that there's curvature. And so the field forces are going to be different as you approach different objects. But by walking through and experimenting and holding up their phone and rotating themselves through space, they come to finally understand that. And I think that's just such a great example. I mean, it's really a win-win. Here are students who are using something that is an extension of their <laughs> brain anyway, their cell phones, right? They, you don't have that 15 minute span of attention that you get when you sit in column and rows and they're overcoming and learning for themselves um, and deducing these principles from action. And I mean, I can't think of a better way to, to sell the whole framework. Yeah, no, that's great. I, and so Sheila, you mentioned a, a couple uh, concepts that I think um, will be familiar to educators, but I know many of the people who listen to the show are not educators. It might be interesting to... Uh, just talk about what you mean by the flipped classroom and what you mean by project-based learning. Cause I think those are both quite relevant here and, and maybe part of what uh, 
you'd like to see in the future and I, I what I would like to see in the future as well. So I'd like to hear a little more about well, that. Well, you know, like I, what I talked about earlier, you know, this hands-on learning has been very intuitive for teachers. You know, you go back to Montessori, you know, who, you know, and even the Montessori schools of today, you know, it's really hands-on that they really do the projects, they, you know, do all of the activities and then they talk about it afterwards and they come up with the principles and the designs. And so that's kind of like the idea of, you know, putting the power into the hands of the students and where the teacher is not this talking head, but a facilitator, a facilitator for learning. And the idea that I have as a cognitive psychologist is that we're not pouring information into an empty head. You know, it's not like tabula rasa, you know, you, you can, you know, even as professors, you know, we can do the same lecture every semester and you have one kid or a couple of students, students, a kid, students in the classroom who will take the idea and just run with it and it'll make your eyes pop. You know what I mean? So, you know, we can't always count on what, you know, it's not that traditional input output, you know, type of thing, but rather to kind of release some of the uh, power in the classroom to be a facilitator rather than sort of the, you know, dictator, you know, transfuser of information. So, I mean, science has really been on the cutting edge with these project-based uh, learning uh, in terms of, um, you know, the hands-on. They've had that, that ahead of us. But I think that, um, I think that if we kind of plan this, we can do it low-tech and we can do it high-tech. We can do it XR, VR, and AR. There's all kinds of different things. We're talking with a lot of different developers. And certainly I wanted Jennifer to talk about uh, the simulation center at Kansas City University. We're trying to get funding to bring to have summer institutes to bring folks there for research and development to develop, you know, to have teams to come, whether content areas, biomedical or you know, basic ed or whatever. Um, and to talk about, you know, how their pedagogy can be embodied and have a meta awareness of what I'm doing. So a lot of educators already use the body in terms of the classroom, but to have a real deep understanding of why we're doing this and how this impacts the students, it'll change our sort of meta awareness of what we're doing. And so this project that we're trying to get this institute um, would be to have teams come uh, talk about their pedagogy, develop sort of, um, you know, embodied learning activities and uh, and then bringing them back to the cl their classrooms and sort of, you know, we're, we're at the cutting edge stage now. I'm cutting edge, I mean, beginning stages of, of this. Jennifer, why don't you talk about the simulation center? We want to get on the, this sounds great. I want to be on the listserv for any of the new stuff that comes out because I love doing this stuff in classrooms too. So. Excellent. Good, good. We, we can help write the grant. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we yeah, so in you. <laughs> <laughs> we need all the help we can get. <laughs> uh, one of the big draws for me um, coming here to Kansas City University was this brand new, it's a 54,000 square foot building. It's called the Center for Medical Education Innovation, um, also known as the Simulation Center. And because KCU is a graduate only university that we have um, one of the oldest uh, doctors of osteopathy degrees in the country. We also have a clinical PsyD program for which I teach in. Um, and there is also um, a biosciences um, degrees as well. So um, the center is really based on simulated patient care. Everything is done with either interactive mannequins um, that actually respond to your vocal commands and it's, actually amazing to see the questions you can ask and 
the accurate and diverse responses that these mannequins will give. But as well, it has this AR, VR component um, where patients can actually be fully simulated and you can interact with them virtually. And so this center went in, believe it or not, right before COVID and was one of the only medical schools that was really well poised then to continue education during the pandemic because they could do it virtually. And to go back to your question about case-based learning, it's really popular within the medical fields, but also in behavioral health as well. And instead of this old, you know, teach one, do one, see one uh, model, which has existed for hundreds of years, it's really now about going in and, and doing it instead of just sitting and learning about it and then you know, following this whole notion that, well, if there's time, we'll do an application or we'll go see a patient after we learn the principles. And I think what's really revolutionary um, about the center and of course about this paradigm shift more um, globally is that it's the application first and the principles are derived later from the application. And the simulation center is, is a great example of that. That's great. Yeah. Well, as a, a virtual reality developer myself, uh, I really appreciate that. So, <laughs> you know, one of the things I was thinking about this as you were talking about uh, VR, as a as a developer and as a learner myself in computer programming, uh, I had such a profound shift in my understanding of of actually software development and computer programming when I started to do VR because there's this concept in in um, programming of object-oriented programming. So the idea that you have these representational units that are objects and that they're, they have a, you know, all these characteristics and they, they move as units. And that was hard for me to appreciate before I actually stepped into VR and just grabbed a ball. And like, there's a ball, that's an object. And I can move that object. It has color, yeah. has a shape, has a position, a transform. All makes sense. And I just, my, my whole way of understanding all of that just completely shifted instantaneously as soon as I just reached out my hand and grabbed it. Um, and so I think that's, that's has applications across so many different domains. That brings um, to mind the phantom limb uh, experiment where, um, so the experiment was to sit somebody down in front of a computer and that there's actually an, an arm in, in the uh, virtual reality, sorry, uh, in the um, space and that the movement of the arm, you know, movement of the arm in the virtual space activated the same motor cortex um, that you would say if you were picking up that ball. So when you were doing that in the, in the virtual space, you were activating the same thing as if you actually picked up the concrete ball. So just think about what that means, the, the, the next iteration of learning, what that can mean. It's just, it's just mind boggling. Absolutely mind-boggling. And quite frankly, young kids already know this because if you have kids that do Pokemon Go and walk around the streets and you know they're identifying characters walking down the street, I mean, they understand this at a whole different level than we do as adults. So we're really excited about it, but I'm sure the kids probably expect this just like we expected flying cars and uh, you know when we were kids, so. Yeah. Yeah. So in your book, and I like this as one of your um, thoughts in your intro, which I think is completely applicable, you, you talk about um, the matrix and sort of the brain in the vat kind of idea um, and how that, you know, what do you, what does the movie The Matrix tell us about embodied cognition or how do you see that idea of the brain in a vat as, as relevant for embodied cognition? Well, that's Larry Shapiro's work. He is the contributor for that. And I mean, I 
just drooled over it when we got it because I just thought, wow, this is such a cool application for people, you know, and, you know, our generation or your generation to really get a grasp on how uh, virtual reality can really make a difference. And um, the brain in the vet, you know, experiment was just that. It was just that, you know, it's like the old, you know, robot movies where you have this big beaker and a brain in there and it's bubbling and you have all these electrodes in there. And so the idea, and I think, uh, you know, Brooks talked about it and, um, uh, but the idea is, is that, you know, this brain can't exist like this, but in matrix, I mean, you have all kinds of virtual things happening. So you could do things in virtual reality that uh, you can't do in real life. So I'm not really, you know, the best, maybe Jennifer, you know, a little bit more about matrix. I'm not, well, I'm, I may be asking you to speculate a little bit about this, but I think, I mean, you know, maybe one of the ideas with embodied the, you know, the philosophical notion and maybe psychological notion of embodied cognition is that an isolated brain shouldn't um, shouldn't be able to have the same sort of cognitive processes as yeah. as a brain that's hooked up to an you know hooked up fully to a body. Yeah, and I think this really goes back to this idea of affordances. I mean, the example I always um, like to give and, and again give credit uh, credit to Lauren Shapiro for this example is most of human depth perception is the result of moving your head through space. If you keep your eyes and your head perfectly stationary, you lose the ability to see depth. And so the experience that we get by what we might consider just a completely brain-bound view would be very different, literally, than the view you get as you move through space and you're able to perceive depth. So, I mean, another example I think that maybe most of the listeners are familiar with um, that might hit home for hit home for body cognition is. This great documentary that came out two years ago now called My Octopus Teacher. Mm, so here we have so an good. octopus who has this amazing intelligence system, but it doesn't have a, a neural net. Well, it has a neural net, but it doesn't have a, a centralized brain. And so how does it perform its cognition? It performs its cognition, which is quite evolutionarily adaptive and rich through its tentacles. Yeah. And so this idea to go back to the brain and the bat, that all of our thinking and knowledge has to live within our head, I think is a very limited view. Well, it does. It's not real. It's not real. The the idea of the you know this uh, Cartesian model of the body being an albatross around the neck of the mind that it prevents the mind from infinite capacities. Well, that was great in Aristotle's time and Plato's time and the first rationalist Descartes. Uh, who talked about, you know, this mind-body separation and that the body was really an impediment to the mind, that the mind was this, you know, infinite thing. And, and you know, that's kind of getting into really, you know, pheno phenomenology and, you know, philosophy. Clark has a really good example of the blind man and the stick. And he talks about like, uh, you know, trying to explain embodiment and extended mind theory together. And he talks about the fact that the blind man and the stick, where does perception, you know, where is perception? Is it in the head? Is it in the hand of the uh, person? Is it in the handle of the stick? Or is it at the point of the stick touching the cement? Where is the perception? The perception is completely embodied in the environment, situated in the environment. And this is how this person processes information. And this is how, how this person moves being in the world. And um, I think that was a really good example of the extended mind. He also talks about um, 
how we've offloaded our cognition. You know, uh, when he first started talking about it, he talked about it in terms of a notebook, but then later on, he talks about it in terms of our, you know, Chalmers talks about it in terms of our uh, cell phone. You know, like I, I talk about my husband asked me for phone numbers. I have no idea what a phone, right, you know, right. phone you know, this is offloaded into my uh, my smartphone. So, you know, the idea of an extended mind, you know, while philosophical and theoretical, it really does hit home because we have, you know, offloaded a lot of our cognition into, you know, external uh, technology. Yeah. Well, I this is a fascinating conversation, and uh, it's it's great to to get this perspective. Uh, kind of wrapping up the towards the hour, uh, thinking about a, a, a final question. I guess what I'm curious about is when you think about the classroom of the future, where the impact of embodied cognition is appreciated and the learnings and the lessons of, of this new cutting edge research is, is really taken into account and, and used practically in the classroom. What does that look like to you? Well, we've been approached by quite a few software developers who want, you know, who, because of the book, want to know how they can get involved with developing curriculum. Uh, but for me, the future classroom is going to be students moving around, maybe with Oculus glasses, uh, with the teacher as a facilitator. Now, one of the software folks that we talked about said that they can only monitor one kid at a time. I think in the future that the teacher will be able to have, you know, uh, a way to monitor all kids' movements or activities in those virtual world, rules at, worlds at a time. But um, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take people like you, Joe, uh, <laughs> who work with psychologists like us and, you know, cognitive scientists uh, to develop that curriculum. To and, and that's kind of like the next step that we're trying to talk about in terms of our Im umbrella of embodied learning, that it can be applied to all content areas. But, you know, it really is in the baby stages right now. We're a very small community. We need to develop taxonomies and assessments for determining if the classroom is really doing embodied work uh, and then looking at, um, you know, what those outcomes are and then how do we bring it to scale? And, you know, it's gonna be a big, big job, but right now in order for something to get down into education and teacher education and textbooks takes about 10 years, which is horrible. We're hoping that, you know, this book will get people excited, uh, you know, for the future of what things can be and how we can, you know, make a make a difference. I just want to put in one final point that, you know, I think embodied um, learning doesn't have to be high tech. I mean, there's a wonderful array of um, AR, VR stuff happening, and I don't want to minimize that at all. But I think that to focus at that at an exclusion of just simple manipulatives, which also can have, have their, do have their own affordances and the ability for children to learn with. Um, you know, I don't want to paint the right, the, the wrong picture. And I don't want to suggest that this is only for the elite that you have to have expensive technology. Yeah. So, you know, simple things. And we, again, most educators know this, especially in early development, things like geotiles and bean bags and all of these things that, give a learner affordances of practice that enable body-based body movements, those can be effective too. And I think there's a place for those as long as, as with the AR, VR to, to coexist. And I wanted to add one more thing in terms of classroom. 
I don't know how many uh, teachers that you guys uh, get involved with, but, you know, we have these professional developers that go out to school districts every year, you know, a week before classes start, and they do all these bells and whistles, and infamously, they talk about brain exercises and exercising the brain and really perpetuating this, you know, Cartesian notion, or even your brain in the bat model that, you know, brain is a muscle, we need to exercise the muscle. And none of it is rooted in real, you know, empirical evidence. And I think that, you know, those neuromyths were trying to, <laughs> you know, attack and, and say that, um, you know, school districts and, and you know, teachers and, and uh, you know, educators really need to kind of take a, a back step and, and really kind of examine what's happening, uh, you know, in the classroom and, and how the teachers are being educated, which is really problematic at the present time. Well, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. So, so Sheila McCreen and Jennifer Fugate, um, thanks so much for uh, stopping by and talking to us. Uh, I think we'll hear lots about this uh, topic in the future. Thank you, Absolutely. So much. Thank you so much for having us.